the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brooks Show starts now. All right, happy weekend, everybody. I hope you're having a great uh, weekend. It's beautiful here in Southern California. Uh, where I'm broadcasting this uh, for the Blaze, I got to I got to visit the Blaze uh, on uh, on Wednesday this last week and got to uh, got to meet a lot of the people whose voices I know or whose names uh, I know. So that was that was a blast. Uh, and Glenn has uh, you know Glenn Beck has this, these amazing amazing facilities in Dallas. So uh, really a lot of fun uh, to be there and a lot of fun meeting everybody and. Uh, Lots of cool stuff planned for the future, so uh, we'll keep working hard, and uh, hopefully you guys, uh, you know, you guys can help. Share the program, uh, let people know about it, and uh, call in. And you can call in today, 888-900-3393. Happy, really, really happy to uh, hear from uh, from any of you. Uh, we're going to be talking about a number of different things, I think. We're going to uh, start off with talking about uh, Amazon. Uh, and uh, the threats that Amazon is facing right now from the Justice Department for the S FCC, but also from just there seems to be kind of a public backlash against Amazon. Amazon is now the new high-tech villain uh, of the day, so uh, should be interesting. Uh, interesting to hear your thoughts. What do you think? What's your experience with Amazon? Are you you an Amazon fan? You uh, skeptical? You're afraid of Amazon? They're going to take over the world. They're going to control everything. They're going to be everywhere. Oh, you like, hey, they made my life better. I don't really care. Uh, so, yeah, give me a call. Uh, let me know your thoughts on um, on Amazon, 888-900-3393. Uh, we're also going to talk about Charlie God, uh, this this uh, unfortunate, you know, really sad case of this young um, young kid in, uh, in England. And... Uh, you know everything around that, the whole hoopla around around that, the demonstrations. There are no threats to his, to to doctors' lives and to uh, to the hospital administrators' lives. Um, a lot going on around the Charlie Good. I guess there's a there's a new specialist over there from the U.S. trying to decide if if any treatment would be appropriate. The, the parents have received U.S. Uh, temporary residency, I guess, so they can bring uh, bring Charlie to the U.S., I, you know, just a whole hoopla. Does it make any sense? Is it justified? Uh, why? Why? Why is there so much attention being placed on this case? We'll, we, we will talk about that, and then we'll see. The Democrats have a new uh, economic plan that they're going to reveal tomorrow, uh, and uh, we've just got some hints about what that relates to, so we'll talk a little bit about that, and uh, and a bunch of other things, you know, uh, uh, there's tons and tons to talk about. So uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the show. And uh, again, feel free to call in and uh, share any thoughts you might have. All right, Amazon, right? And, and Amazon is, um, the Democrats have been spending the whole week this week attacking Amazon and uh, claiming Amazon is gaining too much, I guess, market share, too much power. You know, Amazon has just bid to buy, not bid, actually, announce the purchase of Whole Foods. How many of you have been in, uh, inside of Whole Foods? They're going to purchase Whole Foods. Whole Foods has a small percentage of the grocery market in the United States, but it's just one more area 
in which Amazon, um, people are, are afraid, I think more emotionally than anything else, that Amazon is going to dominate our lives. They're going to sell us groceries. They already sell us pretty much everything else. And, you know, it started off with books and CDs and now, now they're selling us clothes and everything. I mean, what can't you find? on on the Amazon store. Of course, they've also got Alexa. We'll talk about Alexa in a little bit. You know, Alexa that sits in a home, you can talk to it. Or as some would say, it's spying on you. Um, and uh, so they're, they're dominant. They they just announced the deal with Sears, where uh, Sears will be sending uh, selling the Kenmore appliances line through Amazon. Uh, so again, everybody's, everybody's afraid. And indeed, the shares of... Uh, uh, people like uh, uh, Home Depot and Lowe's went down quite a bit uh, because now Amazon's going to be competing with them on appliances, at least. Uh, uh, in the past, uh, Home Depot and Lowe's have uh, been deemed safe from Amazon because, you know, you're not going to go and buy lumber from Amazon and not going to buy kind of the big stuff that, that Home Depot and Lowe's, kind of the, the, the home repair kind of stuff. But why not? Isn't that coming? You know, so people realize, ooh, maybe Amazon can can compete with these guys. So their shares have gone down. Uh, some of those, um, uh, some of that, uh, some of those guys uh, are, uh, are taking a hit financially. But but you know, the idea now is to try to sick the uh, the Justice Department on um, uh, on Amazon because it's. Uh, it has uh, become such a dominant and such a uh, so-called monopolistic force out there. So that's, uh, in addition, the FCC, the F FTC, sorry, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has opened up an investigation about, um, about Amazon in terms of discount pricing that they are reporting. So the prices they report and then they compare to, we're cheaper, we've got a discount. And they're saying those prices are rigged, those prices are not true, they're not right. So just another another way in which the government wants to come in and regulate and control and um, you know, tell Amazon how to do their how to do their job, how to do their business. So on every front right now, Amazon seems to be under siege and primarily, well, not under siege, it's not that bad yet, but under criticism, massive criticism by the media, by commentators, and, and the government's clearly looking at them. This whole Whole Foods um, deal is leading to the fact that, uh, you know, the government is looking at it. Why? Because every merger and acquisition today in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, every merger and acquisition in America, every significant one anyway, has to get approval from your local bureaucrat. Actually, not from your local bureaucrat, from your, well, to some extent, the local bureaucrats have something to say about it. States states can file against some of these mergers in certain cases. But your, your Washington, D.C.-based bureaucrat has to approve every significant large merger and acquisition deal in the United States. Now, now just think about that. The bastion of capitalism, the country that represents free markets more than any country in the world, you need to get permission, if you're Amazon, from the government if you want to buy Whole Foods. Amazon has does not have more than 50% market share. It actually has much less than that in any area, 
it, it does not do, uh, you know, a significant amount of online sales. I mean, it's the biggest player by far, but it doesn't dominate it in the sense of more than 50%. Uh, Whole Foods is a tiny player in the grocery market. Doesn't matter. You still need government bureaucrat permission for the merger. And, and, and some people want to tell me and you and all of us that America is a capitalist country. In capitalism, you don't need government permission to do a merger and acquisition. You, you want to buy a company, you offer them a price, their shareholders go cool, and you buy the company. Not in America, not in 2016, not anymore. You need a stamp of approval for some bureaucrat to make the deal kosher, to make the deal okay. It, it really is, uh, you know, stunning, really really is quite stunning uh that uh that this is the state of the world in which we live today and 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 this is how it functions but nobody seems to care nobody seems to bat an eye this is one of the issues really that the fact that you know everybody takes it for granted today everybody takes it for granted that the government can go after any business that they can challenge any business model that they can challenge any takeover you know, and, and it's completely okay for the government to do. This is the job of the government. The government is there to protect our so-called economic interests. The government is there to protect us from evil business. The government is there to centrally plan to some extent, one extent or another, how the U.S. economy functions and how the U.S. economy runs. And that today is taken for granted by Republicans, by Democrats. You know, they argue about the, at the margin, Oh, we shouldn't apply antitrust here. We should apply it. They, but they don't actually argue any kind of principle. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When I get back, I want to talk about what antitrust is, what's its history, how it's been applied in the past. I want to talk about the famous Microsoft case, but also some other cases, Standard Oil and others, because the fact is that one of the biggest criticisms on capitalism is always, but there'll be monopolies, and monopolies are bad, and monopolies are evil. So we'll talk about whether monopolies are bad, whether monopolies are evil, and does antitrust really protect us? Does it do more harm than good? What is the role of antitrust law, and what would happen to the pure capitalism? Then I want to get back to Amazon, because I have to admit, I'm a little biased. Not biased, because I'm completely objective about this. Amazon is one of the coolest companies ever to exist on the face of the earth. And to some extent, Amazon of today is the Sears of yesterday, and it's uh, it's kind of interesting in that context that Amazon is driving Sears out of business. This is exactly what happens, the beauty of capitalism. But we'll get to all of that. All right, you can join the conversation uh, by calling in. Uh, what are your views on Amazon? What are your views on antitrust? Um, any companies you hate that you want to sick the federal government on? Let me know. Uh, you're listening to the Ron Brooks Show, and we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to The Blaze. Best-selling author, prolific media contributor, PhD in finance. This is the Ron Brooks Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Right, this talking, is the Yaron uh, Brooks Show. All right, we're talking uh, Amazon today. We're talking uh, 
We're talking antitrust, broader than just Amazon, but Amazon is in the crosshairs right now of the Justice Department. They are after. They are after Amazon. They want. They want blood. Uh, at least the Democrats do. We'll see if the Sessions uh, Justice Department actually follows through. Sessions is pretty bad on these economic issues, so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw something coming out of it. But we'll see. We'll see. I think people at the FTC might be a little better than they were under the Democrat regime. Um, all right, we, we've got uh, Dan from New York calling, so we're going to take this call. See what he, what Dan has to say about antitrust. Hey, Dan. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How about you? Great. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was just going to say, I've been I've been in pharmaceutical sales since 2006, and I actually was a part of a very large merger of two companies. I can name them if you want, but it was very interesting to see how it worked. Um, you know, it was up to the companies to do what they want to do. I didn't have anything to, you know, against it, and I'm not against that kind of stuff like you just mentioned before. It's free market. Sure. People decide to do what they want to do, what works best. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, then they won't be, you know, maybe they won't be as uh, as much market share yep. in that business if it's not a good idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, many, many mojas fail. And, and I'd say, you know, the success rate in mojas, particularly big mojas, is very low. Uh, you know, it's far more often that companies overpay and don't realize how difficult it is to actually merge companies, merge product lines, merge the business stuff, the, you know, all the technical aspects of it, merge the corporate cultures. Very, very, very difficult. But what the government has any business in this, I don't get. What, what, what interest is there? Um, why do I care if Amazon merges with Whole Foods? I mean, I might care if I'm a customer of one of them and I worry that this might distract them from giving me good um, good service, but I'm not entitled to any particular level of service. I'm not entitled um, to anything as a customer. You know, I choose to, to, to shop there or I don't choose to shop there. I can leave and go shop somewhere else. Right. And the thing is, you, it was interesting what you just said, because when we were part of the merger, the company that I was originally with, that I was with first, who was buying up the company already had, I think they owned around 30% of the market of the, I mean, of that company, and they were taking the rest over. And it happened after the market crashed in 08. So the value of that company was down significantly. They did not want to be bought out at a cheaper price. And then they, it became a hostile takeover, kind of, you know, so it went a little bit you know, it's yeah. more of a, you know, fisticuffs of, oh, what are we worth? What should we be worth? Well, the market's down, so you're not worth as much as you would have been before. And definitely the culture was different because one uh, company was uh, international and another company was based here. And I was with a company that was international, even though I worked yeah. here. But you yeah. can see definitely the cultures definitely had some friction on how things were done and it, how things were communicated down the line. So that, I would say, is sure. Why would government want to get involved either way? Because they would know the insights. I would, I'm not saying this in a better way, but I would probably have more insights than the employees would then. But it's nobody's business, right? I mean, companies, uh, corporations owned by their shareholders. If the shareholders want to take, uh, you know, the risk involved in doing a merger, as you said, uh, it's difficult. As, as I said earlier, it's difficult. It's hard to do. It's not easy. Uh, but that is a risk that companies are doing in the name of their shareholders. And if they lose, the shareholders lose. You and I have no say, have no, the company has no fiduciary duty towards us in terms of, in, in terms of whether it merges or doesn't merge and so on. And the government has zero to say about this. It's not the government's job to tell businesses how to run their business, to tell business how to treat their customers, to tell business 
what kind of mergers to do and what mergers work and what mergers doesn't. You know, let's talk a little bit. Thanks, Dan. I really, I really appreciate the call because let's. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about why it is the government intervenes. I mean, the government intervenes because of this law called the antitrust law, and the, the, you know, there are many. Uh, the the primary uh, law here was a law passed, I think, in eighteen ninety called the Sherman Act. Uh, and it was followed up in 1914 by the Clayton Act and then by the uh, the creation of the Federal Trade Commission Act, which the act created the Federal Trade Commission in 1914. And the Federal Trade Commission is supposed to monitor trade and, and monitor these, uh, the well, trade internally in the U.S. So monitor the behavior of corporations is supposed to monitor um, uh, mergers and acquisitions. So I would say that these three acts, 1890, 1914, are the original uh, anti-capitalist, anti-free market, anti-business legislation that passed in the United States. In a sense, 1890, with the passage of the Sherman Act, was the beginning of the end of American capitalism. I mean, there were real problems with capitalism even before that, in the sense that in capitalism, as it was practiced in America, in the sense that government was intervening even back then. Of course, we had slavery, which is very anti-capitalist, but, but we had subsidies of the railroads, we had all kind of cronyism, related to the railroads. But other than that, you know, from the Civil War to 1890, government pretty much left, kept its hands off of American business. There, there was regulation of banking. There were regulations. But as compared to today, it was almost free market heaven, almost. And then 1890, they passed this law. Why did they pass the law? Because they're afraid that these big businesses, steel companies, uh, uh, railroads will come to dominate their industry. And what will happen? So they're afraid of the economic power that these businesses will have over the U.S. economy, that they will be so dominant that they will raise prices and the quality will go down. I'll give you an example. During the 1870s, Standard Oil, J.D. Rockefeller's oil company, had 90, I think it was 92% of all the oil refining capacity in the United States, 92%. So we said, oh my God, there's a monopoly and he's dominating. And all these books were being written, mudrucking it was called, about how awful this is and how destructive it is for the economy and how destructive it is for everything that's going on in the U.S. And this was anti-American. And Congress responded to, to, to this hysteria, and it responded by passing the Sherman Act and by passing the Sherman Act in, in an attempt to regulate and ultimately to break up the large businesses like Standard Oil, like U.S. Steel. Now, the fact is that during the reign of, of Standard Oil, having over 90% of all the oil refining capacity in the United States, prices went down every single year. Quality went up every single year. But, you know, we don't want facts to, to obscure the, uh, the good intentions of government, right? Uh, they were trying to what? They, they, they presented it as trying to protect us from those evil capitalists, from those evil monopolists. All right, you're listening to your own book show. We'll be right back. On the Blaze Radio Network.
The Yaron Brooks Show. All right, so we're talking antitrust today, pretty technical economic issue, but always the issue that people raise when they want to attack capitalism and the issue that the government uses to control business like no other one. Um, whether it's collusion, whether it's dumping, you hear Donald Trump talking about dumping all the time, whether it's monopolies, government is using these tools, these tools that the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act and, and uh, the FTC, the creation of the FTC in 1914 made possible in order to dramatically regulate and control business, regulate and control, you know, what business does, how business does it. And um, is, is it justified? So my view, the only role of government, the only role of government is to, to defend the individual rights of Americans, to protect us from force and fraud. And there is no force and fraud being applied to us if companies collude. There is no force and fraud being applied to us if a, um, you know, if there is, uh, if a company has 92% share of, uh, you know, of its business. What force and fraud is it? You don't have to buy from that company. You don't have to engage with that business. Economic power, the power of a company, is not the same as political power. Political power is the power of a gun. Political power is about coercion and about force. Right? Economic power is, is the power, right? Is the power to give you a better service. It's the power to negotiate. It's the power, it's a voluntary power. It's you get to decide. So we confuse economic and political power all the time. And it's wrong for the government to intercede. It's wrong for the government to intervene, to try to dictate how much market share I should have, whether I should have 90% market share, 50% market share, 20% market share, and it's none of their business. There's no rights being violated. There's no force being applied. All right, so the whole issue of antitrust is an issue of the government trying to pretend or imagining or trying to convince us that our voluntary decisions are not legit, are not justifiable. And that what is required is a government oversight, a government central planner, somebody who knows better than we do about how business should be run, about what prices should be, about what products should be sold, about who should be able to merge with whom. Right. And again, this goes back, back way back to the 1890s when they went after Standard Oil. Standard Oil was as close to what would, one would call a monopoly as one has ever achieved. 92% of all oil refining in the U.S. And yet, and yet, prices went down every single year. So there is a moral argument against antitrust, not the role of government. Even if the monopolist is abusing their power, 
which is very, very, very rare. I dare you to find me an example in history where monopolists actually abuse their power. You can call in and give me that example, 888-900-3393. Find me an example. Find me an example where a monopolist abused their power. 888-900-3393. But even if they did, even if they did, so what? You don't have a right to a particular price. You don't have a right to get particular goods. That's what private ownership means. I get to produce it. I get to set the price. You get to choose whether to buy from me or not. You don't want to buy from me? Don't. And if I raise my prices too high, and now we're turning to economics, what would happen if I raise, if I raise price too high? Competitors would arise. Competitors always arise. Always arise. So that's why monopolies never survive. So-called monopolies never survive in a free market. That's why market dominates never dominance never survives in a free market. Not because of antitrust, not because of government, but because if you mistreat your customers, if you treat them badly, then customers will move to somebody else. A competitor will arise. All right, so um, that's the, that's the uh, uh, and you can see this example after example, so get Standard Oil. By the time Standard Oil was broken up, you know, 40, 50 years after it had gained that 92%, what percentage did it have of the oil market? Less than 20. It was tiny. Why? Because in the meantime, competitors had entered the business, and they were competed with it. You didn't need government to bring about the competition. All you needed is to leave the economy alone. Competition always arises because there's money to be made, particularly if a company gets lazy or has bad policies or does something that is not good for customers. So as long as they're not using coercion, as long as they're not putting a gun to your head and forcing you into their store, as long as they're not forcing you to buy their products, government has no business intervening. Con uh, uh, collusion, syndicates, whatever you want to call it, are just inefficient instruments. They break apart. Look at OPEC. They can't keep their members together. There's some wonderful stories. In the, um, in the early part of the 20th century about how Dow, from Dow Chemical, competed against German uh, chemical companies who were colluding, who had created a syndicate, and who had driven the prices of chemicals up in the United States. And what Dow did is he produced more efficiently, and he undercut their prices. So what did the Germans do? Because they had such a dominant, they were such dominant players, is they lowered prices called dumping, below the price that Dow was selling. And in order to compensate, because they, they were losing money, it was below their cost, they raised prices in Germany. So they were making more money in Germany, where they had, quote, a monopoly. And then they were, and by the way, they, I think it was a government protective monopoly, and they lowered prices in the U.S. to screw Dow. So what did Dow do? Dow bought up the chemicals in the United States from the German companies really, really cheap at a price where they were losing money, shipped it to Germany, and undercut their price in Germany. 
<laughs> now, today you couldn't do it because of all the constraints and import and export and the regulations and all of that. You probably couldn't do that today. But in, in the early 20th century, before these regulations, before all these controls, that's how Dow destroyed the German chemical cartel. And, and there are lots of stories like that, lots and lots of stories how American entrepreneurs under freedom destroyed so-called monopolies, destroyed so-called cartels, destroyed so-called so collusion, destroyed it when companies tried to dump. Right? Every time the Justice Department has gone after somebody for antitrust reasons, you can show that those companies were you know, had actually been lowering prices, quality had been going up, there was nothing wrong, there was no problem. Same thing with Alcoa. You remember IBM? IBM during the 1960s, the Justice Department went after them because they monopolized the computer business through their mainframe business. How long did that last? Digital had those mini computers, and then you had the PCs, and even though the suit was filed in the 60s, by the 1980s, the Justice Department had to withdraw its antitrust suit because it was so ridiculous, because it was so pathetic, because it was so obviously the market had overtaken anything the government was afraid of. And now, now they're going after Amazon. All right, when we get back, I'm going to talk about why antitrust basically penalizes, potentially has the potential to penalize every business in America, why it's unjust, and we'll talk specifically about Amazon, why Amazon are heroic, why Amazon should be a company that's celebrated and not penalized. And I'll read some stuff that, that this one guy wrote about Amazon. It's just horrific. All right, we'll be right back. You're listening to Iran Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Israeli military veteran and radical for capitalism. It's the Iran Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Brooke. All right, so we're talking about antitrust. We're talking about Microsoft. Let me tell you a little bit about antitrust. Then we got a call from Skyler from Delaware. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, about antitrust. Why antitrust is such a vicious, uh, vicious, vicious law. Think about it this way: every business in the United States could be prosecuted and under antitrust laws. And this is how, right? If you are um, if, if you are underpricing, if you are selling very, very low, below the cost of all your competitors, if your rate is lower than what your competitors is, then that's an antitrust violation. You must be dumping. You, you, it's, it's, it, it's not fair for you to, to try to steal market share by selling below supposedly your costs, right? So that's dumping. Right? And, and you hear dumping all the time. I mean, uh, uh, Trump is constantly complaining about steel dumping in this country and other. And, and in the 80s, the Japanese were accused of dumping microchips. And, and we controlled microchips imports from Japan because they were dumping. What, what does dumping mean? They were selling them cheap. So it's a problem. It's a problem now when you sell stuff cheap. All right. What if you sell it expensive, like above the market price? 
Like you're making a nice, supposedly, again, you're making a nice profit margin and people are buying it and you're selling it above the market price. What does that say? Well, you must have a monopoly because otherwise why would people buy your stuff so expensive? So now we go after you for monopoly, right? You have pricing power. In a free market, you're not supposed to have pricing power. What happens if you sell exactly the same as all your competitors? You know, at the same price. Then you must be colluding. Then you must be colluding. So antitrust laws go after you whether you sell your product for cheap, expensive, or the same as everybody else. Now, part of this comes from a false view of competition. It's called perfect competition. If you studied economics, you might have studied this. It's this idea of perfect competition. Perfect competition is where all companies look exactly the same, have exactly the same information and knowledge, produce exactly the same product, and therefore none of them have any pricing power. Now, economists teach this as some kind of crazy ideal. It's not. It's insanity. Nobody wants to live in a world like that. What we want is companies to innovate, to create something special, to produce something better, to keep pushing the envelope. What we want is companies to strive to achieve monopoly power. Because what is a monopoly? In a sense, monopoly power, in quotes. What is a monopoly in that sense? It's some comparative advantage. Some competitive advantage. That's great. Every entrepreneur who ever started a business is trying to create a comparative advantage. He's trying to make money. He's trying to create a profit. Apple, part of its comparative advantage beyond the good products that it sells is the name Apple. We associate it with a certain type of product, with a certain type of experience. Amazon, you know what really blew away Amazon originally early on? Was the one click button. You found something you liked, you clicked once. You didn't have to keep putting on your... This is years and years ago. That was an incredible innovation that moved everything forward. But it gave Amazon a comparative advantage. And once it established that comparative advantage, once we put our credit card information in Amazon and we had this one-click feature, even if other people established a one-click feature, we'd still have to re-establish, give them our profile, give them our credit card number, it's all on Amazon already. I can go buy it on Amazon. I need to put that credit card information again into somebody else's website. Who wants to do that? But that's the whole point, is that these companies are constantly striving to try to give them, to, to, to figure out a comparative competitive advantage so that they can make money by providing us with great value and great service. And yet that comparative advantage is exactly what deems them so-called violators of antitrust. And that's what justifies the government going after them. Think about every startup. Think about every entrepreneur. Think about every new company. What is it striving to do? To create that comparative advantage. To create profit margin. To create an edge over all its competitors. To create something that the competitors can't do. So... A whole market works in exactly the opposite way to the so-called perfect competition model, and yet that is what's being taught. And that same perfect competition model, which is, which is one of the most destructive things that anybody teaches at universities today. The flip side of that is monopolies are bad. Monopolies raise prices. Monopolies 
reduced quality, even though there are no examples of that or, or almost no examples of that in history, that's what's being taught to our students. It's not surprising all of this. All right, we're almost at a break. As usual, I've got more to say about this than we can cover in an hour. Um, we, will, uh, we will resume after this hard break. You're listening to your Ron Brooks show on the Blaze Radio Network. Applying the principles of rational self-interest and individual rights on your radio. It's the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brooks Show starts now. All right, we're back. Thanks for staying through the break. And uh, we're talking about, we've been talking about Amazon. We've been talking about antitrust more broadly. And, and I, so I want to summarize. Antitrust laws are massive infringements on the rights of businesses. They're massive infringements on the rights of entrepreneurs. They're massive government intervention into our lives, into our economy, into the way our economy runs. If you want to do good for the U.S. economy, get rid of the antitrust laws. And as I explained, as a businessman, you're guilty under, under antitrust, whether you, whatever you do almost. If you sell too high, if you sell high, if you sell low, if you sell like everybody else, you're guilty no matter what. Basically, antitrust laws are laws that are there to penalize success, to penalize successful companies, to penalize Companies that, 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 that do fantastically well, and what is the indication of doing fantastically well? That they gain massive market share. That's the real essence. That's the real purpose. That's what antitrust laws are there for. They're there to penalize, which is uh, what makes them so large so horrific, so horrific. All right, let's take a call from Skyler. He's been waiting patiently on the line for a long time. Hey, Skyler, how's it going? Good afternoon, Dr. Brooke. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. That's you got to speak uh, up. I speak just... up because I think, I think your volume is Oh, oh okay. Okay. Hello? Is this better? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would just like to get an per- objective, uh, objectivist perspective on the Bell system or Ma Bell uh, alleged monopoly and subsequent breaking up. Well, Marbell had an alleged monopoly because it had a monopoly that was protected by government. You see, the one thing that creates real monopolies, the one thing that creates real monopolies is government. It is um, government intervention. So uh, AT&T, Marbell, was protected by government from competition. And you couldn't compete without getting permission from the government. And the government restrained competition. So there was only really one provider of telephone communications in the United States before the 1980s, before the 1980s, before some entrepreneurs managed to break the spell. And then Congress finally said, no more protection. We're going to break you up. Um, There would have never been a Marbell if uh, the markets had been free to begin with. So Marbell is an example of the kind of monopolies that are really damaging. And the really damaging monopolies are monopolies that the government protects. I'll give you an example right now. The post office. Try to deliver yeah. first-class mail. First-class mail. You go mail. to jail. Yeah. You go to jail. But 
So, so uh, that is a that is a real monopoly. Try to compete with Marbell, you go to jail, right? And and there are lots of examples of this. I mean, there's some stunning stories about people who uh, who develop technologies that Marbell didn't like, and how Marbell used the government in order to suppress those technologies, in order to drive those technologies out of existence. Um, and and it, it, it you know it was it was real. It was worse than just cronyism because Mark Bell was basically being protected by government laws, by the government completely. All right. So, thanks, Kyle. I really appreciate the call. So, this is the point, Thank you. right? Appreciate it. Government is force. Government is coercion. Government is the fist, the gun. You can't disagree with the government unless you're, risk, uh, unless you're willing to risk going to jail, unless you're willing to risk having force inflicted on you. Markets about voluntary transactions. Markets, you can walk away, you can resign, you can quit, you can go somewhere else. You don't, there's nothing in markets. You're not allowed to use a gun in a marketplace. If you use a gun, that's the one job of the government. The one job of the government is to protect us from people using guns, from people defrauding us, from people doing things that curse us. So the marketplace is a place free of coercion until the government steps in. It steps in to prosecute antitrust, that's coercion, breaks up a business. Why, why would you break up Standard Oil? Why would you want to break up Microsoft? Do you know what Microsoft's sin was in the 1980s, 90s, sorry, in the 1990s? It offered, and why the Justice Department went after them? Because they offered a browser for free. Those of you old enough to remember this, it, you know, in, uh, in 1996, I think it was, when Netscape went public, Netscape was the browser everybody used. And we paid for it. We bought it. It cost 70 bucks. And then Microsoft did something brilliant. It bundled the brow its browser, Internet Explorer, with DOS. So you got a free browser when you bought DOS. And Netscape flipped out. And they got angry. And they went to the government and said, that's, that's dumping, the equivalent of dumping. They're undercutting our prices. And that's when the Justice Department went after Microsoft. Right? So you can't undercut your competition by offering a product for free. So in a free market, there is no coercion. And therefore, there are no monopolies. Monopolies, by the essential characteristic, are coercive. They are dominant players. But those dominant players will not stay dominant unless they offer great service at a great price. Competitors would compete them out of business. There's always competition. There's always somebody waiting on the wings to get you. If Amazon messes up, there's Jet.com, which Walmart bought, which is just waiting to pounce. And there's probably a hundred entrepreneurs out there who are waiting to create the next great thing that would drive Amazon out of business. How long has Amazon even existed? Since the late 1990s. And, you know, before that, Amazon drove out lots of other businesses that were probably considered monopolies at the time. All right, we've got Daniel on the line uh from minnesota hey daniel what's up hey ron long time listener first time caller you there go ahead yes i'm here 
Yep. <clears throat> I want to make uh, two points. Um, unfortunately, you just made them for me. I was going to bring out the Microsoft example, and then also just the difference between a non-coercive monopoly and a coercive monopoly. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to call ahead uh, faster next time, but no worries there. So I guess I'll just bring up the, the psychological trauma that, uh, that well, for example, the Microsoft case had on Bill Gates. I mean, here we have one of the most brilliant minds of the 21st century, and can you imagine just the, the trauma he goes through when putting all that time and effort and energy into building this, this huge business and then just by some unobjective loss and regulator all of a sudden it's just crushed by him. Can you imagine just the psychological trauma that goes through and what that personally had on him, on the human capital side of it, I suppose. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and look, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's a massive cost to all this, and the cost really is that it completely demoralizes the companies that the government goes after. The government is going after you with a gun. The government is going after you with the full force of government. It is, it is there to stop you from doing what you're doing. You invested all your effort, all your time, all your energy in this company, Microsoft, let's say. You built something that is changing the world, that is incredibly valuable. It was the most valuable company in the world at the time. And the government comes in and says, you can't do that. We know better. This is bad. This is not in the so-called pub public interest. And they basically shut you down. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for the call. Um, What's important here to understand is the difference between economic power, the power to negotiate, the power to offer value for value, the power to offer product for money, the value to offer services, and coercion, which is a gun, which is force, which gives you no alternatives. You can't shop somewhere else. You can't do something else. You're forced to do what you are told. And this is exactly what this country was established to prevent. It was established to provide for freedom, for us to be free, which means no coercion, which means letting business function independent of a government gun telling business what business practices are good and what are bad. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to try to wrap it up on, uh, on uh, discussing Amazon. You're listening to your Ron Brooks show. We'll be right back after this break. PhD, author, media contributor. This is the Yaron Brooks show. The Blaze Radio Network. listening to the Yaron Brook Show. All right, let's talk a little bit about Amazon itself and, and about this case uh, regarding Amazon. Uh, again, I, you know, I think the whole issue of monopolies is absurd, but there, there definitely is this envy um, with regard to Amazon. There's a certain hatred, and, and it's in our culture. It's deep in our culture, particularly uh, on the left, but also I'll read you a, a, a piece here by somebody on the right. There's this deep envy there's this deep resentment of uh, success, of successful people and successful companies, and particularly uh, there's this uh, adoration of the mom and pop store, the mom and pop, uh, you know, grocery store, the mom and pop corner store, whatever. Uh, 
and uh, a resentment of Amazon basically dominating so much of what we do. And, and uh, you know, the left, you expect this and, and you get this all the time. And the Democrats are pushing for there to be an investigation. And, you know, here's Amazon who's I don't know about you guys, but it's changed my life completely. I mean, everything I buy, I, I buy on Amazon, I buy somewhere else online, but I was taught to buy online by Amazon. And my standard for what an online buying experience should be is Amazon. It's, it's the standard. It does it best, right? So I might compare and I might look at other sites, but at the end of the day, Amazon is how I think about online shopping. Now, some people resent that. Because, oh, they have such a dominant position. I respect that because it's made my life better. I get Amazon Prime. I get all this stuff shipped for me two days, free shipping. And if I don't like it, I return it. I mean, it's unbelievable. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't remember shopping before Amazon. I certainly did a lot less shopping. So I've, I've shopped more with Amazon than I would otherwise. But I shop much better. I can compare instantly different products, different prices. If I don't trust Amazon's pricing, like the so-called FTC investigation right now, I can look at Best Buy. I can look somewhere else. I can check. This idea that we're so stupid and so ignorant that we need the government to come and watch over us and protect us from the evil businessmen is so ridiculous, particularly in the era of the web, where we can select. And, and then there's the comments section and stars, and I can read what other people think about the product and whether they have good experiences or bad experiences. I mean, it's... It has improved shopping and therefore improved the material well-being of human beings by so much it's, it's literally unimaginable, unimaginable. So it's just unbelievable to me that anybody would have a complaint against Amazon and they keep innovating and they keep proposing new ways to do this. They keep proposing new ways to improve our lives to provide us with a better shopping experience, to provide us with better tools in our world. I mean, we use Alexa all the time at home. Now, we use it in a pretty, pretty primitive way. Um, like, like, like 20 years ago, 20 years ago, how would you know what the weather was? Well, you'd have to look in the newspaper, right? You'd literally have to look in the newspaper. What's the weather forecast? Or you'd watch your local television news. How painful is that? How, who's watched local television news in the last 20 years? I haven't. I never watch local television news. I hate it. Now, now, okay, so about 10 years ago, you looked it up on weather.com. Five years ago, whatever. Looked it up on weather.com. And you got a great detailed forecast and you could tell. Now, I say, Alexa, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? Oh, what's the weather going to be tomorrow in Miami? And she tells me. And it's amazing. And it's cool. Oh, Alexa, you know, I've got something in the oven. Tell me when 30 minutes are up. And she tells me. Now, that is an improvement of human life. It makes my life easier and better. And of course, it can do, Alexa can do a lot of other things that <laughs> I don't use her for. Play me a song, any song I want, from the entire music library of the human race, of history. And she'll just play it. I mean, the convenience, the benefit to human life, it's just unbelievable. Now, people, what do they bemoan Amazon for? They've driven the mom and pop stores out of business. He, he, this guy, 
writing on, on, I couldn't believe it. Like this is on, um, what's it called? What's the website called? Uh, it didn't save the website. Pajama Media. I used to be on Pajama TV a lot. Right? This is Pajama Media. This is supposed to be pro markets. And here's this guy writing, the guy named, uh, it, also took, it also took his name away from the article. That's too bad. I wanted to shame him here because I, I, I don't, his name does not appear. Anyway, it's called the Amazon Washington Post and why it needs to be destroyed. Destroyed. Amazon needs to be destroyed. Why? Because it demolished bookstores, big box stores, department stores, grocery stores, record stores, and even smaller retail outlets putting small businessmen, struggling authors, and garage bands out of business. Really? There are more garage bands now than ever before because platforms like Amazon have made it so easy to distribute your music or distribute your writing. Now, it's funny because this guy's an author, and he says, oh, they make it so difficult for me to make money. The royalties are so low. So he's complaining, right? And then, ooh, the shares of Home Depot have gone down. I mean, this guy wants buggies to still exist. Why have an automobile industry? Imagine all the industries, automobiles destroyed. It's so frustrating. It's so, so frustrating that, that people still hold uh, these ideas. So, um, but this is what we have, right? So he, he, he's bemoaning that Amazon is destroying Home Depot and Lowe's, that it's going to destroy Whirlpool and Sears. I mean, Sears is dying. All, you know, uh, uh, stores out there, brick and mortar stores, are slowly dying. They're dying because they can't provide as good a service as Amazon can. So, yeah, we could go backwards. We could go to, to looking in the newspaper for what the weather is. Oh, we can embrace the future. We can embrace technology. We can embrace the far, far superior buying experience that Amazon has provided. Yeah, his name is Michael Walsh. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Michael Walsh writing for Pajama Media. So what we need is to celebrate Amazon, to thank Amazon. Amazon is this amazing company that does so much for our lives, that has improved our daily shopping. I don't go to the mall anymore. I hate malls. I hate going shopping. My wife, even clothes. My wife buys clothes online, Amazon, eBay, other places, and I try them on. They're no good. Send them back. Same with shoes. Same with everything. Why go shopping? What a waste of time. Having to walk around there. I can even, even window shopping I can do online today. And the thing is that these people, these Luddites, these people who want to take us backwards, it's not enough that they want that experience. They can. They can go to the mall. They can go to the shops. They can go shopping. They can buy a newspaper and look up the weather. But they want to force, force, impose their will on me and you. They want to tell us how we should live. They want to break up Amazon. They want to destroy Amazon. And they want to impose that world on us. They want to use coercion to destroy our lives. All right. Um, I'm going to shift topics after the break. We've got a break coming up. We're going to talk about Charlie God. 
uh, and what's what's happening with Charlie God. Uh, and um, I encourage you again, if you if you want to call it, Stuart, I know you're holding, but I really don't want to get into songwriters' royalties uh, today. I don't want to get into IP. Um, we, we can do that another time. 888-900-3393 if you want to talk about Charlie God after the break. Uh, and... Uh, you know, hopefully you learned something about antitrust today and about about uh, how much I admire Amazon. All right. we right. You're listening uh, to the Iran Brooks Show. Uh, we're on the Blaze.com radio network. You won't hear traditional political views here. This is the Iran Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Ron Brooks show. All right, we're back. And the two things I wanted to say before we drop Amazon completely about this uh, this horrific article uh, that was in, uh, you know, a supposedly conservative publication. Now, maybe maybe he was being trying to be clever or cynical or whatever it, it, by Michael Walsh, but but this seems real. So he's complaining about uh, Amazon is like Amazon is doing to business what Sears did to small bomb and pop stores a hundred years ago, and he's saying, "Yeah, Amazon's just like the Sears catalog." So, what's he complaining about? Sears that Sears should have never existed. I mean, it's 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 just mind-boggling. And then uh, he gets to the real crux of it, I think, and that is his complaint about the fact that Amazon owns the Washington Post and therefore owns this. Uh, you know, false news, so-called false news in quotes, false news apparatus. And um, and that's really doing that in order to gain political power and how Donald Trump is going to go after them, you know, justifiably because they own and maybe these companies shouldn't own media because it's too much. In it. It's just a mess, just a complete and utter mess. So, uh, you know, this is this is this is where we are today. All right. Let's skip topics and uh, and talk about uh, Charlie God. Uh, you know, I don't know how many of you are following this, but this is a story of the baby uh, of of the the young boy in uh, in England who has a very rare, very very I think there are only sixteen cases ever of this disease, uh, genetic disorder that is basically uh, incapacitating uh, his 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 brain. It, it goes to the brain and it makes it impossible for the brain uh, to, to properly grow. It's called mitochondrial depletion syndrome. Mitochondrial is a, is a, is a genetic, genetic material. Um, here's how it describes his situation. He can't breathe without a ventilator. Move. He's deaf. He has severe epilepsy. Um, and they are saying, again, the doctors at least are saying that he has severe brain damage. Now, the parents... Now, he's in this uh, British hospital. Uh, all of his treatment is being paid by uh, the British Health Services because they have socialized medicine. And a decision has to be made. At, at what point do you disconnect this child from the ventilator and, and let him die? I, I mean, there's no life here for him. He, he's got severe brain damage. He can't breathe without the ventilator. Who wants to live that way? Why would anybody want to live that way? And, and of course, who's paying for it? Now, it's socialized medicine. 
So who gets to make that decision? Under socialized medicine, the hospital gets to make that decision, or courts, in this case, gets to make this decision. Now, the parents, the parents don't want the child disconnected, and the parents have latched onto the idea that there's this experimental medication treatment in the United States, and they want to take the child and move him to the United States to experience this, this uh, experiment. Um, and they've actually raised the money to do it. Now, in a free market, in a completely free market, yeah, the, the parents would have a complete decision about what to do here. And they would decide where to take the child as long as they're paying for it. I don't think insurance companies would be willing to keep the child on the ventilator and ship him to the United States for treatment that is probably 90% plus not going to do any good. And even if it does good, it's not going to repair the brain damage the child already has. So we'll get to the moral question of whether should one even try to save this child. But it would be, it's the, it's the parent's responsibility. It's, it's their child like it or not, they would go through the motions, they would pay for it, they would do whatever is necessary. One of the great evils of socialized medicine is, it's not, not your decision, it's not the parent's decision, it's not even the insurance company's decision, it's the government's decision, it's a court's decision. Now, what does a court got to do with this? Well, the court has to decide how to use public money, government money whether to keep some people alive or other people not, because if you kept everybody alive all the time, the social system would run out of money, right? Would run out of money. So socialized medicine is a disaster. This isn't a good case to illustrate it though. This kid is dead. This kid, in my view, should be allowed to die. Keeping him alive is an abomination. And at the same time, millions of people, millions of people are being harmed by socialized medicine. Millions of people are standing in lines to receive MRI or any kind of treatment. Thousands of people are not being treated with the most effective treatment for cancer or heart disease because there's not enough money in the budget and they can't pay for it themselves. The injustices committed daily on healthy adults are constant. And nobody cares. This is the great mystery, right? Nobody cares. Nobody cares about the thousands of people dying because of socialized medicine. Nobody cares about the fact that thousands or millions globally of people are not getting the best cancer and heart disease treatment because of socialized medicine. Nobody cares that people die in line waiting for the MRI. But you take one child with severe brain damage, and parents who are going to do anything in their power to keep him alive. And suddenly everybody cares. People are flying to England to demonstrate. To demonstrate. Why? Why is this the case that is galvanizing us? Arguably, if you cared about the child, you would argue for them disconnecting him. Letting him die. You can't say that about adults. You can't say that about healthy people who are just waiting for an MRI or somebody who's got the beginning of cancer and not going to get the right treatment. That's the real evil. It's because of the altruism in our culture. It's because the more, the more somebody is suffering, the more we got to care. The more somebody is closer to death, 
the more we got to care. The more they're damaged, brain damage in this case, the more we have to care. But that's upside down. I mean, you know, I feel horrible for this kid. I feel horrible for parents. As a parent myself, I can't imagine what they're going through. But the fact is, this kid will never have a life. This kid, no matter what the treatment does, will never have the parts of his brain that have not grown properly. Those won't come back. It's true. The court system shouldn't be deciding this. But this isn't the case on which to fight socialized medicine. This isn't the case on which to take a stand. Because I think the parents are wrong here. I think the parents should allow the hospital to let the child die. And it's only this awful, awful sense of, I, I don't know, I don't know what it is about us that, that, that well, I do know, it's this, it's this awful morality that we all live under. The, the, the worse off somebody is, the more we want to jump to his defense. And note, note that President, President uh, uh, Trump has come in on this issue. And the Pope, the Pope you'd expect it, has come in on this issue. Keep the kid alive. Keep the kid alive. Bring him to the United States. Congress has given the parents temporary residency in the United States so they can bring him without going through the visa process. Why? There are thousands, millions of people who would love to come to the United States to get health treatment. People who could actually live a, a, a good life if they got that treatment. Why are we making this exception for this child? Why is this what is motivating us to give temporary residency here for Congress to go into session? in order to address this. I mean, this is just horrific. It's horrific that Congress would do such a thing. I mean, if Congress wants to pass a bill saying all the victims of socialized medicine in the world, or in Great Britain, or in Europe, or whatever, if you want to come to the United States to get better treatment, we will give you a special visa that is, makes it easy for you to come to, into the United States to get special treatment. I'm all for that. That'll be great. Come over, get the treatment, pay for it here, for everybody. But to pass a bill for one child, a child that actually probably will not be able to be helped by this treatment, and even if he is helped by this treatment, will stay crippled and, 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 and cognitively deficient because his brain will never have developed enough. So he will never live a human life. But that's what these people want, I guess. That's what these altruists want. They want this kid to suffer. All right, we're gonna take a, we're gonna take a break to, to and and we'll come back. Uh, happy to get your calls. What do you think about? I know, I know what I'm saying is not very popular. What do you think about this Charlie God thing? Eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three. You want to defend? You want to defend Congress and the president for making a big deal out of this? Eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three. What would you do with Charlie God? We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to the Ron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Yaron Brook Show, the Blaze Radio Network.
All right, we're back, and we're talking about Charlie God, this this uh, poor kid who um, who has a genetic disease that is basically uh, d- destroying him. It's eating him alive, and uh, basically he is going to be crippled for the rest of his life. He's no matter what the treatment does, he he is going to have an unfunctioning brain for the rest of his life. He's not going to be able to live as a human being. Now, look, I completely agree that it should be a hundred percent the parents' decision if they have the money to pay for it, which they do, uh, and it shouldn't be a political issue. It shouldn't be up to the states to make these decisions. But you have socialist medicine. The state is making these decisions every single day. Why is this kid become the, the symbol, the, the, the thing that conservatives are latching onto to try to attack socialized medicine? This isn't the good example. The real example is every single day people are dying because of socialized medicine. Every single day people are denied choices because of socialized medicine. Every single day our system is collapsing, our healthcare system is collapsing more and more and more because, because of socialized medicine. So Charlie God is a bad example. Because there's no good outcome. It's not like under private health care, there'd be a good outcome from this. If England had a private health care system, the parents would pay $1.3 million now, they've got $1.3 million, to keep them alive, basically as, as a vegetable, I guess, and, 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 and probably a suffering one. There'd be no positive outcome here, and he'd probably die. Yes, maybe they'd learn something by, by treating him. Maybe they'd learn something about medicine. But who the hell wants their kid to be a, a guinea pig of experimentation when the chances of actual living a life as a human being are basically impossible? I agree completely that, with the point that it's not. It should not be the government. It should not be the hospital making these decisions in in a private healthcare system, it wouldn't be. This is clearly a, you know, a horrific one example of millions of examples of why socialized medicine is so, so bad. You have, you know, what do you call it? Death councils, death committees who decide who lives and who dies. But it's, this isn't the example. And why, again, why is our president getting involved? Why isn't he, why isn't he denouncing socialized medicine every single day? Why? Denouncing it only with Charlie God, and he's, he didn't really denounce socialized medicine when he came out to show his caring about Charlie. Why? Why is Congress getting involved if socialized medicine is so bad? First of all, Congress could repeal Obamacare; that would be good. It could repeal Medicare; that would be good. Those are socialized medicine programs. Let's not become England; that's good. But again, this child is not an example—a good example of the true evils of, of socialized medicine. Uh, I think he's, he's being used. He's being used but primarily by, by uh, elements of the religious right all over the place. He's being used. And, and look, the protesters after, outside this hospital uh, giving death threats to hospital administrators, giving death threats to uh, nurses and doctors, disrupting the functioning of the hospital. I mean, where were they when, again, hundreds of people every single day are suffering because of socialized medicine? They didn't care. But you give them one really, really suffering kid, one child who cannot live a normal life as a human being, and they go nuts. It, 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 it offends them suddenly. Why are you fighting for this life? 
are not the lives of normal people, not the lives of healthy people. It, 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 it's sad, right? It's sad. And we're not fighting for his life. They're fighting for his life to keep him alive. It reminds me of the Tibby Shivo kiss. You remember the Tibby Shivo kiss years and years ago in Florida? She was basically had been on life support for, I think, a couple of years, and her husband wanted to unplug her. She was brain dead. She was completely dead. There was nothing there, and he wanted to unplug her. And the, 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 um, the, her parents didn't want it. And they actually passed a law in the Florida legislature that just applied to Terry Schiavo. Why just, you know, because in the name of the right to life, quote. What life? What life? You're a vegetable. What life? Disconnect it. Let them die with dignity. Let, let, let it end. I mean, it, it's tragic. It's sad anytime children die. But it is what it is. Ah, sad, sad note. All right. You know, what we hear in the owner books are for freedom. We're for human flourishing. We're for individual human flourishing. And the only system that provides that is freedom. And in healthcare, that freedom is necessary across the board. All right. You've been listening to another show, the Yoran Book Show. We're on the Blaze Radio Network. See you next week. Applying the principles of rational self-interest and individual rights on your radio. It's the Yaron Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. <laughs>